Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to have Russell Rumball with me today. He is the Systems Director at the Aerospace Corporation Center for Space Policy and Strategy. And before that, he's worked in various positions in the DOD, the Hill, academia, and he was also an Army captain. So, Russ, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Eric, uh, thanks for having me on. Congratulations on all the success you've had with this podcast. And I got to say, already you've done a better job collapsing in my litany of various jobs into a, a neat little soundbite. So I'm excited to be here with you. <laughs> you were actually at a OSD Cape as a civilian while I was there as a contractor. So we didn't get to overlap. I was just kind of deep in the bowels of the, uh, the cost analysis group. We had a little bit of overlapping. We can talk about our other overlaps as well, but you're not supposed to start by admitting we both have a programmatic background. The programmers are the bad guys to most people. Oh, yes. And, and we'll, we'll definitely get into these discussions uh, with some interesting things happening on the Hill. But I want to start here by, by looking back, since I think you have a, a pretty good like long view of, of the Department of Defense. And there's this kind of nostalgia and this idea that weapons acquisition actually like performed better back in the day when we the 1950s and all the ballistic missiles and nuclear stuff and jet aircraft. And there seemed to be advances all over the place. Was it actually working better back then? Or is that mostly perception or nostalgia? Or we just threw a lot more money at the problem at the time? I, I love how you've, you've wrapped up that question. I was going to tease you a bit. Is, does anybody ever actually think it's, it works, but you've tipped on a couple of of key distinctions. And definitely space is one of those places where we definitely get like with the glory days, right? When we were beating the Soviets, but you've you've picked up one of the key reasons, right? When Benny Schriever out at the Western Development Division, he was getting 5% of the entire defense budget. So absolutely, he did amazing things. Aerospace is very proud of being part of that history, but we as a nation, we're also throwing resources at it. Similarly, uh, same time frame, the Navy's Polaris program, that made it up to 4% of the defense budget. In contrast, our last big crash course, the Chiado, uh, the ID office, they never got 1%. Even uh, missile defense with the peak of Star Wars still only got about maybe 2%. So it, it's a different question, right? It, that Some of that reminiscence is true, but True for reasons we don't always talk about. And then my favorite one is everybody likes to talk about how we were willing to take risk. We lost 13 Corona missions before we succeeded. And looking back, that sounds oh glorious, like you got to take risk. But Richard Bissell at the CIA, he thought he was about to get fired. His words for this was, it was heartbreaking and frustrating. So easier to look back on the victory than look forward at trying to make it what happened. Similarly, the other Another example I'd used at Spoked Balloon, again, aerospace, one of our great claims to fame was being part of the creation of GPS, right? We won the Collier's Trophy for it, the big aerospace prize every year, but everybody went to kill that thing when it started. It took more than a decade of people being like, this is stupid. We don't need this. Inertial navigation is great. Now everybody uh, knows how to use it. And when I say everybody, I don't just mean the military services, like just in our daily life, we use it, but it faced unbelievable obstacles at the time. Some of that reminiscence is, is letting the glory days fade out. 
And if you haven't come across this, the real way to close this question is there's a Harvard study from 1962, Peck and Scherer, and they argue all the programs they looked at were for their for development were averaging 3.2 times the estimated cost and 1.4 times the estimated time. So man, if in 1962, the programs are already going off the rails, that's probably a good sign this isn't a new thing. I think what you get is there's a lot of complaints that are really about how the US political system works, right? There's multiple stakeholders that get in the way. It's never smooth, it's never easy. Even for the Polaris submarine, one of the greatest consensus of, yeah, we should do this, or similarly with ballistic missiles, like there's still backbiters and complaints about it. So I'm not quite convinced that there really was this halcyon glory. Yeah, I think you bring up a couple of interesting programs like Atlas and Polaris. And these things were actually like exceptional programs at the time. They were like special program offices or whatever, right? Disposed and they were actually thought of as special and unique and broken out from the traditional ways. And Bernie Shriver actually said after the teapot commission, he was like, I'm not going to take this on unless you give me radical authorities. And the same thing with Polaris. I love Harvey Sapolsky's uh, book on that program. But like they just ran that thing in a completely different way than we run it today in terms of how they selected for people. But also I love the chapter nine there, which was like pert and the myth of program management. So like they had all these exquisite systems that we run today, but they actually like that was just for show. That was quote unquote pizzazz that they would put out there just to get Congress off their back and just give them the two billion dollars. It's cr crazy how much to think like two billion dollars in 1960 money. They got a lot of money for that, but. It was still run in a different way. And Oscar Morgenstern, I think he said at the time, like, if we had these types of controls that came into the 60s in the earlier years, we never would have actually succeeded with the Polaris weapon system. I definitely hear you. There's, it's, it's hard to tell because it was so domineering at that time. The Department of Defense actually spent 50% more on research and development than the entire commercial industry. So we were just pouring resources down into these things. But it also felt like there was a little bit different of a style of management. And Peck and Scherer, I think in their book in 1962, everyone should read that book, by the way. That's one of the classics of all time. And when you read it, you're like, oh, nothing has changed. But they said oftentimes programs got started in that time because someone with money trusted someone with an idea. And it was, and they actually said like interpersonal trust was like key in, in that aspect. Do you still, do you think there's some kind of aspect of interpersonal trust that was going on or different management styles? Or do you think it's really more of a continuation that we see today than there's like a paradigm shift? I, I think you can actually see the dynamic of interpersonal trust. I'm just not sure that was really what trumped it there. Let's go back to Harvey's book. When he, I love his point about Pert. I love you bringing it up. But his uh, number one reason for why the Polaris system was run so smoothly was because they could ask for however much money they wanted. Who was going to say no to the dream weapon that was going to stop the Soviet? Yeah, they didn't have cost overruns because they asked for $2 billion a year. In again, as you say, in 1960s, that is one of the great, one of the great tricks. And that's because we still had the same US political system, right? There were a bunch of veto points. There was disagreement among the services. In fact, What's different then between now is back then, your buddies and the other services might go up to Congress and be like, and that program is stupid. Right. You don't hear that very often uh, today. So the greatest critics, military, uniform military officers commenting on other uniform military officers, you don't hear very much. So actually, I think it's the other way. But still, let's get positive, right? I mean, just in space, the vice chief of space operations just today 
pointed out that the Space Rapid Capabilities Office is doing stuff they've never done before. Space Development Agency. You want to talk about interpersonal trust, right? That was clearly the baby of one senior official. And now it is doing super cool technical stuff. And while it's a, it's a concept not everybody will agree with, they're not even trying to win is this concept, right? They're just trying to prove it out technically. So we certainly have those things going right now. They're not un unknown. And yeah, it helps a lot. How much are we seeing that already with the Marines uh, light amphibious ship, right? How much is that because the Navy thinks that's a great idea? And how much of it because the com commandant's like, hey, I need this. Let's do this. It also reminds me that some of these programs, they're like coddled. So like they're special and they're coddled to a degree. But do they just need more money? Because what we're throwing at the Space RCO and, and the SDA and some of these others, even the Jake, the DIU, these all these other little ones that are they're sparking up, they're usually in the tens or the kind of low hundreds to mil of millions. If they're doing good stuff, like why aren't they getting gasoline poured on it? First and most important answer to that is I definitely need more money. You should definitely be pouring. <laughs> I don't want you to pour gasoline on me, but if you're just pouring money out, feel free to send it my way. Everybody's life would be easier if they had bigger margins. The problem is every time you put a dollar one place, you don't go to put it another place. So where are you taking that dollar from? And it's not just political backing, right? You can never forget engineering is hard. My favorite example, my non-defense example is one of the great cars of my life was my Honda CRX. It was amazing. My father, a little jealous of how great my car was, bought the follow-on version, the Civic Del Sol. Eric, it was a total lemon. They pulled it after two years. This is Honda at like peak Honda, right? This is Honda when Japanese automaking is the greatest ever. They have proven that they're the best engineers in the world. And they just cranked out a lemon. Not because they shorted it on research dollars, not because they were short on development. It's because engineering is really hard. Getting that magic in place takes work, let alone all the nuts and bolts that goes with acquisition, like contracting and getting the right people in place and then doing the hard work of going up to the hills. No, you can't just buy solve all your problems with money, although you can hide a lot of problems with money. Yeah. I definitely agree with you on the engineering is hard. And I think this gets to some of the, the issues here. It's whose decisions are being made and how does that affect the actual engineering decisions on the ground? So I guess in, when I think about how a lot of science and, and engineering is done, is it someone's kind of anticipations about what might be right? And then just going off experimenting and scaling and there's a bunch of losers, but you pick the winners or is it designed by committee? where you have like a good idea fairy and then that kind of gets added on and everybody signs off when they get their equities met and then it just goes, right? And does that process, that latter process potentially lead to suboptimal outcomes? Yeah, but so does relying on genius, right? You rely right on genius, theory, right? you rely on genius and you get Howard Hughes. There's a limit to both systems, right? The question is, can we do both? In fact, I wanted to push back you pointed out that no longer is DOD 50% of R&D spending. True, but DOD is still spending as much on R&D as it always was. It's just now we have a bunch of commercial firms doing it too. And I would emphasize they're not actually doing S&T. That gets a little confused. Google puts a crap ton of money into research and development, but it's all already advanced development. It is already late in the life stage. It is not fundamental S&T. And that's at one of the companies that comes from like pure thought. We're seeing a lot later in the stages. So while there's a lot more money, it is not, and DOD does not have as privileged a position. It's not that DOD isn't still shoveling in money, 
but still, you're absolutely right. You gotta be a little scared if you catch yourself defending the committee system, right? Camels, I'm not defending them. But at the same time, they're bets. And whereas where you can occasionally take advantage of an Elon Musk, which is one of my favorite examples, right? It's not like the US military didn't care about batteries. They've known batteries are fundamental to what they do. And they invested billions of dollars into battery research. The problem was they conceived of a battery as one thing, self-contained. And Musk's big breakthrough was not one battery, self-contained. Oh, it's line up a bunch of different batteries and then optimize how they talk to each other. That's a fundamentally different paradigm shift. So you absolutely need to create systems that allow for that ingenuity, that allow for that innovation. But to think you're going to spend all $700 billion on long butts, that's not sober either. Oh, most certainly not. But that's that's need to be made. And it seems like the Department of Defense is making all these little bets. And we just saw a couple of days ago, there was like this article that was like, DOD tech tourists not buying stuff, but pretending to that it wants to outreach to Silicon Valley. So I guess there just needs to be an avenue for those things to actually scale at some point or be able like, so what is that balance? Like we need, we need to walk and chew gum at the same time, but what does that look like? Yeah, there's a sweet spot. The idea that we're going to get in that sweet spot and stay in it without perfectly, like that's crazy, right? Not to take advantage of my space background, but we have these satellites. Most of the work is done, Earth's gravity whipping them around. But it turns out you got to do a little bit of station keeping all the time to make sure gravity's doing the work it needs to do to keep that thing whipping around at unimaginable speeds. We're never going to stay in the sweet spot of too little or too much. We just constantly need to be trying to uh, adapt to it. But it's doable. Before we say DOD is not doing Silicon Valley, in my professional life, this is just an unreal example to me. We, we have these cars, uh, not the cars I own. I, I'm a single decision maker. And so we can make hard trade-offs. And I assure you, in my family, no hard trade-off has come. We should have the high-end self-driving technology. We take the cheap minivan at every turn because we're a unitary. Although it's my spouse and I, we still can manage to be a, a unitary decision maker. But if I rent a car, doesn't run into the car in front of me, won't leave the lanes, it's amazing. But back when I was first in the Pentagon, DARPA ran the Grand Challenge, which said, hey, can you make these vehicles drive through the desert without falling off the road? And the answer was, no, nobody could do it. DARPA keeps running it a few years later and you get success. And then the next year when they move it to urban, success is even faster. They have multiple teams win the first try. To think that DOD is only on one end of Silicon Valley is crazy talk. This is when you break out that, uh, that the Google founders were living off a National Security Science Foundation grant uh, during their days at Stanford. I guess this, that's a good point, but here's my view. And I call this the boomerang effect because as we do cool stuff in S&T. There's a little bit more freedom to experiment there. And then it doesn't go anywhere. It has to get commercialized. And then it boomerangs back as a commodity that government has later figured out how to buy or make room into its program structure. But it, it's not going to like the, the government seems to be struggling to adopt these things as they're being rolled out through commercial industry. I think you're not looking at the total universe there. You're cherry picking some things. No commercial industry is driving forward stealth technology. No commercial industry is driving forth active defense systems on tanks. So there's a lot of things that only DOD has pulled from imaginary into reality. Those tend to be only a handful of things that get a lot of attention or a, a lot of sustained effort. I think the Aegis 
missile defense system. It's the canonical example, not least of which because it had to weather some skepticism within the Navy, which doesn't mean the dynamic you're describing isn't real. And this is why there's always this desire to get to leverage commercial, because if you can leverage the consumer, all the work is done. To give credit, my, my boss tells the story about when the Air Force finally decided they didn't need their own telephone network, that they could live off the civilian telephone network, even at STRATCOM, even at off at Air Force Base, when that network required getting somebody who's going to go up on the plane and fly around while nuclear war happens underneath. But he said, running up to that, there was all this wringing of hands of like, how can we possibly trust it to work? How can we possibly do it? Turns out it hasn't been a problem. Does that mean we need to immediately move our NC3 satellites onto a commercial uh, payload? I don't know about that. But it is an example. If you can ride the consumer-based, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. We're on Zoom right now. It, despite being an enterprise product, it, by focusing on consumer, it's just been so easy to use, even in the middle of the pandemic. But you're never going to get a consumer-based tank. And that's why when you get on those military aircraft, you, ride, you walk a ship, it still looks a little bit like it could come out of a World War II movie, even though it's got some really cool stuff stuffed into it. Yeah, I guess it, I think you're balancing a couple points there, I, I think very well. <laughs> but I think one of the, I guess, macro trends is that commercial R&D is just going to outstrip defense R&D. And if we can't take advantage of the opportunities that that presents, then that's a severe national security risk in of itself. And to the extent that you're building potentially new and cool add-ons to the legacy systems, those legacy systems might still just be disrupted, right? Like if I, if I build a, a cool new site or some kind of integration with FLIR on my tank, that doesn't mean that these cheap drones can't take it out pretty easily. But the tank is a large weapon system as well. So it has, and it has room for upgrades and modularity to be something that could defeat those things as well. So I go back and forth on that one as well. I think you've made one of the key points there, and it's about the tank, right? That M1 Abrams turbine in the 80s, that tank wasn't the best tank in the world, right? We literally lost to the bloody German leopards in tank fight, NATO tank firing rounds. The Army doesn't boast about this very often, but if you look around, the Abrams is now clearly the best tank. And it's the best tank because they've added on all of that networked capability, right? Commander's independent viewer. The tank can go one way, the gunner, the gun can go one way, the gunner can look a different way, the commander can look a different way, all of which tied together and can, be, and can automatically snap it back together. That, it is an incredible use of network team, and it's totally dependent on having a massive amount of power to suck up, suck off of. The Navy you get, usually gets to do this easy, right? Big ship, usually you can find some little corner and you can shove something in. The Army isn't as successful as other places, right? The Bradley, the Bradley's suffering a little bit. There's a reason that Bradley's up on their list before the tank is. But thinking about how you meld those two together and presuming that DOD either has to do it itself or rely on commercial to do it first, both of those are false, right? The question is, how can we better allow for multiple options? And that is a really hard question, especially given what our political system sends. Hopefully that's sympathetic enough to you there. I, I think my real tagline would be like, how do we provide the Department of Defense the ability to manage through real options? And rather than closing off all these options prematurely through a program of record that kind of does it all or joint or multi-mission or whatever it is, I guess my view from Martin Landau, and I love Martin Landau from the 60s, but he says, when you try to go towards these singular organizational structures with 
minimal duplication or overlap, you ultimately just lose your ability to detect errors, right? Because that's an, like the redundancy and the overlap and the options are error detection devices. And they also provide you new and interesting options to improve capability. And it gets back to the whole resilience notion that von Neumann started, right? How do you get a resilient system? By adding layers of redundancy. And we've tried to drive down a lot of redundancy throughout the Department of Defense because I don't know why. It's a good question. And I'd like to get your view on, have we gone too far in that direction or is that just perception as well? I love your question, not least of which because you are very elegantly setting up me getting the shill for my paper, which I'm super (laughs) excited to do. But one, let me talk about space, right? This is the place where resiliency and redundancy get talked about. And we're actually trying to move away from just pure redundancy to resiliency. But space is the only thing where I take it and I put it up and I don't get to touch it again. We're trying to change that too. We're trying to take advantage of on-arbor servicing. But for up until now, and as of right now, once I put that thing up, I, I just need it to work. And if I need it to work, absolutely, that means a lot of redundancy. How much risk can we take? And that is the question that's that's running everybody. Has DOD lost redundancy? Your first problem is as soon as you're in a hierarchical organization, you've lost that risk testing. You've lost that error correcting. And no military organization is going to be anything but a hierarchical organization. There has to be. Uh, and in fact, we don't even need to talk about the military. This is J.Q. Wilson's point about government. The U.S. Army is always going to be around. It's not going away. That's not true of the private sector. Things can go away. Moda Rolla went away. How did that happen? What are you talking about? The company that made radios possible, the company that made cell service possible, and it now lives on primarily as patents Google owns. You talk about what the private sector can do. You have to remember there's a whole bunch of universe you don't see anymore because they're dead and they're extinct. And in the public sector, you don't have that. Nothing's going extinct. We're always saving this thing eventually, no matter how many stupid decisions got made. And again, I need to be careful with that stupid. I'm not saying the decisions are stupid. No matter how many bets the people made because they predicted the future incorrectly didn't pay off. So was that error correction ever built into DOD? Does government just can't self-calibrate in the same way that the market-based economy can? You can add in entrepreneurs, right? It's really fun to watch the, how the Hill behaves because they are all a bunch of policy entrepreneurs. But you don't want everybody in DOD to be a policy entrepreneur. You want some people just making sure our national security is taken care of. I'm not really sure how to react to that. <laughs> but I guess it's also like when I look at the, the military, right? Like the army department. Okay. I think Peter Levine put it pretty well that the military itself is more like an economy than a business and should be run in that way. So I don't care what happens to PEO aviation in in the army. I care what happens to the army and their enduring ability to put capabilities into the field, but I don't care about a particular PEO or TACOM or any of these substructures, right? And those things can live and die and they should and perhaps need more dynamic kind of interactions within there, like the market sector. Of course, we've seen companies come and go on the S&P 500, and that's a pretty dynamic list. And no one would have imagined that. When we created the Department of Defense or the the Royal We, like John Kenneth Galbraith was like the man at the time. And everyone was assuming like, oh, we're going to have these big technocratic structures. The bigger the company, the further ahead they'll always be in research and development. 
and they could not imagine a, a future with disruptive startups and this kind of recombinatorial innovation that we've seen. And so I guess, what, how would you react to that, like that ability within the services to have more because we're we have these debates again like retiring legacy systems and whatever the hell a legacy system is there's some kind of yearning for a dynamic force structure in there yeah once again i'm not sure you're allowing enough for creative destruction right sure in 1950 we look at the big automobile companies and we're like wow they're big and they're going to do great things they just proved they can do great things in world war ii if you don't think of Henry Ford as the ultimate startup, as the ultimate disruptor, you're misunderstanding the history of industrial production. Similarly, Kodak, they were huge American companies that made the S&P and they're run by 30-year-olds because they're unbelievably disruptive. They're not relying on the fourth generation Ford to run them. They're not relying on a, an ossified executive class because they're a different type. That's the great thing about a market is nobody prejudges it. That's why it's an amazing dynamic and a, a very powerful one. What do you do when just your presence is going to interrupt that market? I have somebody who eventually is the decision maker and the only people who's going to judge them is Congress. You're disrupting that dynamic. I, I think you've got to, I think we're, you are picking at something interesting. We absolutely create new things, right? The Army wants to tell you about Army Futures Command. I just listed off Space Development Agency, Space Rapid Capabilities Office. We have new stuff starting all the time. How good a job do we do getting rid of the old stuff? That's a harder question, right? Now, I've walked back into your redundancy question. If we're talking about getting rid of the old stuff, aren't we talking about getting rid of the redundancy? Don't you want the various stages? Don't you want that, that? Yeah, that's a good point. You want to keep them around until the new thing can prove out sufficiently enough. There's an overlap period where I still had my flip phone and everyone had a sweet new iPhone, but eventually I got rid of my flip phone and I went to the new paradigm. So yeah, you definitely still want the legacy stuff. There's definitely some logic to it. How do you make room in a finite budget? And I think- Not this just gets, legacy yeah, stuff, but the legacy organizations, right? Correct. The ones who are maintaining and nurturing what we're relying on. You, you, you don't want to just burn down with, so not just the stuff, but the people who are advocating for this. Okay. So here's, I'll, I'll throw it to a view from Aaron Woldovsky, of course, the old budget scholar. Um, and he was also very critical of the kind of programmed budget that we currently have, as opposed to how it was previously done. And he says, Hey, when you look at the traditional way of budgeting, you budget to an organization, that organization has more discretion over the programmatics and, and the types of things that it does. So if you're a person at the ordinance department, you don't really care about killing this one type of howitzer and going for something else, right? Like your organization is not defined by that previous howitzer. But when you go to a programmatic budget and then you have this kind of program office follow, right? Follow, the organization is now following the program and the program is being predicted and controlled through this you know, elaborate process. Now the organizations are dependent on the survival of that one system and their identities become wrapped up in it. And then like their own kind of careers are, are wrapped up in it. And so you get this kind of natural pushback and kind of ossification and they want to stick with what they've known. So how do you look at that Woldovsky argument? Keep in mind, you've already modified a little bit and you've provided both sides of the argument, right? The, the value of it, if I say, hey, organization, here's your mission, here's your money, just make sure that mission comes through. That's great, right? It gives them a lot of autonomy. It's great principal agent. It's great delegation. Uh, the problem is once you've set them in motion, they just keep coming back and improving the, the same widget you asked them to make the first time. How do you 
provide that autonomy and at the same time, get organizations to change and move to where you think we're gonna go. Now, you wanna talk about the royal we, who's the we and who, what pronoun am I talking about? Who was that that is saying, oh, you US military go that way. We can cheat and say it's the secretary of defense, but you and I are not currently likely to be, to be Lloyd Austin's replacement. So who is this magical we that's just gonna tell the US military go this way? Sorry, go which way? A different way. We created the army. We created the Navy with pretty clear missions. Right. And now there's a complaint they're not going in the right way. You offered both sides to Waldovsky, right? You want to empower somebody by giving them a clear mission with the resources to achieve their mission and then just letting them go forth and do great things. But if you do that, they're going to probably stay in the same direction you started them in. What if you want to change directions? Do you need a whole new organization or can you provide new guidance? Yeah. That's a good question. I guess my view of that was you more or less had budget ceilings for major organizations who had a general mission, right? If I'm a Bureau of Ships, I know ship construction is my thing, whereas like the Bureau of Ordnance or the Bureau of Aeronautics, they have their kind of defined things that they were working on. And they would constantly be looking for also new alternatives and do through market research, finding out what those new things are and experimenting with them. And, and scaling them with when possible. And they had that kind of, I love the, the old school general board collaborative process that they had there in the Navy to move away from battleships and towards the aircraft carriers. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that approach and also wisdom in the research and development board and the munitions board of the 1950s. But yeah, I think it's the people themselves that are working on it that are closest, that are the ones best able to judge what the, the future trajectory might be because they want to contribute their creativity, knowledge, and skills to help, you know, push forward themselves. I think it's mostly a kind of collaborative overlapping network where you have PEO, C4ISR, and PEO Aviation, and PEO Integrative Warfare Systems, or whatever they are. They're all like moving in the same direction and working with each other, presenting each other with new novel options or opportunities and seeing what happens and using that social process to neck down or create or to scale up. But, but that's probably a little bit of a fantasy than a reality or like a, an actual approach. But I think there is something to learn from those old kind of boarding committee structures. You ended a little too strongly for me there. Let's talk about what was going on contemporaneously. At the same time, this is when the, the U.S. Air Corps is taking advantage of the Southern California aerospace industry, right? They, the Air Corps is not creating our uh, arsenals. It's not creating a bureau of ships. There is no bureau of airplanes. It's, hey, Collins, what's your crazy idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Let's see what happens. So contemporaneously, we had the same two different dynamics. And let's plunge into this debate directly, Eric, right? I, I asked Eric to let me come on because I enjoyed his budget paper from July of last year so much. I learned a ton about, he's, he's now referenced it twice, right? He's wanted to talk about the boards, the pre-DOD way that we did collaboration by lots of committees, not unity of command, but rather just get people in a room and see if they can share notes and come to a common purpose. And he did it, what, what I found really compelling and had just not seen elsewhere was how we talked about how the modern budget system, or what we know of as appropriation titles, were actually a reform, right? That they were a reform to try to get more like things put together to make it easier to judge. So I tremendously enjoyed your paper, but Eric was making uh, much the same argument he's making right now, which is running at odds with the argument I made in my paper that came out a few months later, 
fragmentation of DOD, which was like, oh man, we keep doing budget and organization. What do I mean by that? We take an organization and say, this is your mission and here's your budget by which to achieve that mission. Eric's already given a defense of why that can work. But what I noticed is looking back in 2020, we now have a bunch of different animals in DOD. We're used to thinking of it as the three, the four major services or the three major military departments. And then this other thing, this thing we call the fourth estate, a, a bunch of weird animals, mainly defense agencies, but also missile defense agency, also SOCOM, also defense health agency with its own $60 billion budget. And what I looked at, I was like, oh, wait a minute, thinking of it as purely the mill depths and also not purely the fourth estate, that's not the right way to think about what's going on right now. Because SOCOM's budget isn't just MFP 11, it's also the personnel costs that are paying for the people who are wearing, not SOCOM uniforms, but service uniforms, but who really belong to SOCOM. Similarly, what about the guard? We now have a four-star general as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff overseeing pots of money distinctly allocated by Congress, not for the Army, but for the Guard, not for the Air Force, but for the Air Guard. Again, we have a fairly distinct organization with a fairly distinct budget. What about intelligence? The military, forget the National Intelligence Program, the Military Intelligence Program now is a very clearly delineated pot of money, and we have a single person, the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, who's responsible for overseeing that. So we've, got, we've done this multiple times where we've said, hey, this is really important. We need to have somebody focused on it and we need to give them money to do it. That's the basic argument of what has happened. My argument is that that's happened more than we thought. Eric thinks that might be a good idea, right? Uh, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. You tell me, modify, tell me if I've got your argument right or how you, or if you would say it slightly different. Sure, appropriation titles might be segregated by these major organizations, but the real the the problem is that we have programmed line items at the nth degree underneath them and that process of getting new line items relies on prediction beyond our means and it creates these process long lead processes that not only box out commercial but that also lead to inferior weapons choice so i think it's the programming that still underlies the the, the whole thing but in in essence I have nothing to disagree with what you said. All of that is true. But yeah. That was all a long-winded answer to your Woldovsky quote. Okay. And yeah. <laughs> the easy you know, the way I like to do it is how much do we spend on nuclear weapons? Well, actually, not too bad. There's an official answer that's probably relatively close to the real answer, but it's still not everything because we don't have an organization that is solely dedicated to nuclear weapons, uh, a residual of the 1950s inter-service rivalries. Whereas now, if you ask me how much do we spend on special operations, I have a pretty hard number for it. I got to do a little swagging to get those personnel costs, but there is a distinct MFP 11. We just did it with the Space Force, right? How much do we spend on space? Well, the most important thing to go look at is the $17 billion that Space Force is in charge of. But I think one of the real problems here is that you can never have a unifunctional, and this is the, this was the problem of the programming concept in the first place, was that you can never have a unifunctional organization that aligns perfectly with a programmatic outcome. So for example, if you say nuclear is now a program and everything sits under that and there's like a, a program or like a, an organization to go get that, well then, so none of that nuclear stuff will be in SOCOM. 
space force, anything in space that has to be drawn out, but then space doesn't include the total cost of what's actually in space. Right. And then you start seeing this disaggregation across everything. And so there, in my view, there's never a perfect organizational or there's never a perfect budget structure or analytical structure, but things collapse back into the organizations because no matter what you have to administer by organization It's the same thing with accounting and firms. They have to account for their business units, their people, their objects of expenditure. And then the programmatic thing is often kind of ad hoc or layered on top of that. And I think organization, like the budget should meet with what the administrative hierarchy and structure is. And then the programmatic should actually be done, not through the budget, which is a forward looking plan, but we can tag these things in the back, right? When I have an expenditure for the N3 communications satellite, I can say that's nuclear, it's space, and I can cut and slice that in a million ways. And having understanding of where the money went and doing that program analysis, that was always the land of the comptroller in the past. They did that type of program analysis and it fit with the comptroller because the budget at that point was mostly an incremental change to existing organizational plans. But when you say, oh, the budget is now a forward-looking plan of what will be done in the future, technical objectives and programs, now like it has to take on all these additional duties and roles and forward-looking, and that's drawing stuff away from the organization. There's just a little bit of rambling from my point of view. Yeah, but it's good rambling, or it's good rambling. Let's just pull out a few things there. So first of all, I completely agree with your point about the comptroller has been one of the most powerful and useful tools, especially for someone like the Secretary of Defense. I'm just not sure that was always backward looking, right? When the new Secretary of Defense in 1949 gets his three assistant secretaries, it turns out his public affairs and his legislative affairs person can't really tell him uh, what's going on, let alone how to get to where he wants to go. But his comptroller can't. His comptroller has some insight into what people are doing can array it and can allow the secretary to influence what happens in the future. So I'm not sure I quite agree with your sharp break between backwards looking and forward looking. Uh, in fact, even today, one of, one of my conclusions in my big paper was ah, the secretary, secretary isn't quite as powerful as we might like to think. They're, he's hobbled in a lot of ways. But let's first emphasize how powerful the secretary of defense is. And one of the reasons he's powerful is because he does have the tools, including today's comptroller, particularly experienced comptroller, second timer right now with uh, Mike McCord in charge, who can, and, and our buddy, old buddies at Cape, who can go and get you an answer about just about any question. The only problem is it's almost certainly an ad hoc question, right? Because the just ongoing work is just keeping the current inertia going. So only when the secretary is interested and is willing to put the effort into going to discover that question, you can do an amazing analysis. Well, frankly, many cabinet officials would be jealous of that ability. But since the secretary has had that ability for, for many decades, it's easy to be like, oh, man, the secretary has a hard time getting all of these different organizations to shift direction all at the same time. Yeah. I would push back a little bit because I'll bring up Wilford McNeil, who was the first comptroller for Forrestal and then for pretty much the remainder of the 50s. So the first six secretaries of defense, I believe, had him as the comptroller. And I'll just bring out a little quote here from his 1972 interview. He says, the, the guy asked him, what was your view on unifying the armed services into one department? I was against it and I'm still against it, sir. This over-centralization is not healthy. 
And he kind of goes into this a, a little bit here. It was also Frederick Mosier, who was a budgeter over in the Army Air Forces. He talked a lot about this. What the comptroller was doing in program analysis was all about what is and what was rather than what will be. And those were his kinds of words. So I'm, I'm just concerned. Who is making the predictions? We know predictions. And when we look at Peck and Share, right, their two principles were one, the constant presence of uncertainty, and two, the non-market nature of defense acquisition. And those two things, are, I think, are like the perfect starting points for any serious discussion of the acquisition system. But I really want to get to this kind of fixation on the budget as like a measure of oversight, because I don't think it is. And we just had uh, Representative Seth Moulton at a nice little Hudson Institute event with uh, Dan Pat. And he says, in terms of oversight, the truth of the matter is that the current system doesn't really give us the oversight that we need anyway. We're circling the drain with this system where DOD describes in, in intricate detail the ways that it isn't buying effectively. And then con Congress just signs off on that, but never really gets us to whether we're really being agile or fixing it or doing things better. So I'd like you to respond to that future verse kind of past orientation of the program analysis. So I'm not quite accepting your premise that, again, I don't see the stark break between the past and the future. Let's first pause and, and emphasize how important that you've gotten at the fundamental question. What are we going to ask DOD to do next? Is it fight a war with China? Or wait, is it fight a war with Russia? Because those are probably different wars. Oh, where in China are we going to fight it? Oh, is it going to be... In Central Asia, or is it going to be on the coast? Oh, wait a minute. If it's in Central Asia, is this head-to-head -head at all? Or is this through proxies, much like we saw in the Cold War? It'd be really nice if you could tell me those answers now. The DOD would do a lot better planning for it if you could tell them exactly what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. That uncertainty is fundamental, right? Not only is it un the uncertainty fundamental, right? We just don't have to know what the future is. We can have different takes on what it is. We can have different opinions about what actions we can take will influence the future for better. Those are political questions. And that is at heart, these are political questions. And how we, who we give budget authority to, who we give organizational power to, we are providing them the political power to help make those decisions. Can we optimize that to get the best question? Again, we've got this problem that you and I keep using the word we, but who's the we? The nation of the United States? Yeah, that's great. Let's all get together and decide what the right answer is. It turns out that's a little bit tricky to do with 330 million people. But it's what we've all been chasing. In fact, I, let's go ahead and do a, a little brief budget, right? You've done a great job talking about or exploring the sort of pre-program budgeting. What DOD does is, is basically program budgeting, right? Since McNamara came in and created PPBS, we have this program budget. We're not just gonna look at the inputs. We're not just gonna look at appropriation title. We're going to look at uh, outputs. We're going to look at what an F-16 fighter squadron costs. Before that was the appropriation title, which you point out was a reform by itself. But those were inputs, right? Let's, instead of talking, of, let's talk about all the money that goes into R&D Army. Let's, go, let's talk about all the money that goes into military construction Army. Since then, we've already had a full-on third generation performance budget, which says, ah, I don't even care about your output. I want to know about your outcome. I was fortunate enough to be on the budget committee when the, the Congress passed the, the modernized GIPRA, Government Performance Act, and Government Performance and Results Act. There you go. The results, right? Outcome, not output. An F-16 squadron is still just an output. What outcome do you want that F-16 squadron to achieve? 
Do you want them to drop bombs on Uday Hussein or do you want them to penetrate the Chinese interior? So that I'll put, I mean, the budget committee is already a decade ago. I'm not sure anybody thinks performance budgeting has really carried the day. DOD provides a lot of piece of paper describing how they're meeting performance objectives. Uh, that doesn't seem to help Rep. Moulton very much. We are on the verge, or there's hope for this new model, a digitally-based model. And that's what you are getting at. In fact, you were still, you were talking about tags, right? When I have my AHF, I don't have to say, this is an NC3 system. Because it's not, an, it's just an NC3 system. It's also a tactical SATCOM system. It also is a bus. We can hang other things on it if you want. Trying to simplify it into one thing is hard to do. That gets even crazier with a tank. You know what they've been using tanks for? Gates. And it turns out it's really hard to move 70 ton gates. You have all your Husco bastions and tank is what moves back. Probably not how you uh, design a gate in the first place, but man, really flexible and really agile. Can we, with digital tools, get at that rich tapestry of all the things they can do? Maybe. It'd be great, right? It's scary, though. It's scary because you only get at that if you open up the data to everybody to look at and form their own opinion. The Deputy Secretary of Defense just signed out a memo saying, hey, look, we're never going to get here unless we all recognize that all of the data in DOD is a shared enterprise asset, right? There's not Air Force data. There's not Army data. There's data. And we all need access to that. That's great. And that offers amazing hope. And I'm super excited to watch this next iteration as we try to leverage that data, allowing lots of people to get different looks, different analysis, let a thousand flowers bloom. It's also a little scary for somebody who is currently in charge of an organization. It's like, I already know what the answer is. I finally got everybody to agree to it. Uh, Congress has now agreed to this for five years. Please, let's not crack this decision back open. We're never going to get there if we just keep reopening the decision. Please just let me field this thing and I swear it'll be okay. That's where you get those tensions. And that's why there's always those themes you were talking about earlier. Again, I just feel like the budget as a document, as a thing is very different than accounting or obligations, right? Now they're linked, but one is fundamentally, hey, we're going to give you this money to go do something. And the other is, this is where I put it. So I just feel, again, we could, if you open up the aperture in terms of portfolios on the budget side, then you could and apply some more rigor on the back end of where the money went. I'm not saying there's, past doesn't inform the future, the future shouldn't inform our past or like what we're doing today, but you should be able to, through rigorous analysis of what you're actually doing, be able to see where you're going and those things work together, but you don't need to get the detail into the budget necessarily. Uh, we're going through this right now with space, right? We've just had a, a dramatic two weeks in a row. The chairman of the House Armed Services Committee asked General Raymond, hey, we have charged you with taking us into the future. And General Raymond's like, yes, I know that. And we're moving to the future right now. In fact, I have created this body called the Space Warfighting Analysis Center that is going to take us into the future. The next week, the House Appropriations Committee goes, hey, we're not sure if we're sold about this SWAC thing. We're not sure they're going the right direction. So we're going to take all their money. We love what they're based on, SSDP. So here's an extra $10 million for SSDP. But we're not sure SWAC is going in the right direction. It is those line items that are where you work out where, where should we be going. And in the U.S. system... Lots of people get a vote on where we should be going. So can you wish away those disagreements? I'm not sure you can, right? I'm not sure that's the fault of the, the inherent in the budget. I think that's got something to do with 
actually disagreeing about where we're trying to go. I totally agree with that. I would actually argue, and I think this is the historical sort of perspective as well, that the, the budget had always been seen and the weapons choice process had always been a political process and through negotiation, actually. And usually it was management by exception that kind of bubbled up to the top. And then you just had people ably defend themselves almost like in court and decisions were made at the next layer up. But the whole point of the programming system was to get away from that completely. It was supposed to be neutral third-party experts that were going to be able to determine objectively what the correct programmatic course in the future would be. And so it was the whole intention was actually, and the way that the budget is structured with programs was to get away from the political process rather than embrace a political process. And I think the political process always has to win. Like these questions are always ambiguous and there's always interest involved. So the, the, of course the political process will always seep back in, but it was never the intent. And so we're living with a structure that was never intended to do what we need it to do. Eric, why do you think it was not supposed to be political? Because that's what they said at they the time. said, yeah, hey, this is objective. These are analysts. I've got a spreadsheet. That's the Joint exactly. Chiefs of the Stein. The Joint Chiefs of Science. That's crazy. That's just his opinion. Just because he's got a lot of math that confuses me. I've got a different opinion. It's not that one. From the get-go, they said, hey, wait a minute. This isn't impartial. This isn't objective. This is his opinion. Just because he threw a lot of figures at you doesn't mean he's right about the future of warfare. So from the get-go, the Joint Chiefs knew that system was not some neutral objective. What did it do then? What did it do? Most importantly, before that system, the number one way to judge the value of a military capability was, do these guys with 40 years of experience in the military think it's a good thing or not? These are World War II hardened combat blooded generals. They have excelled at managing larger organizations. They have excelled at combat. Obviously we should defer to them, except the problem was all of their answers were, well, the Navy should build ballistic missiles and the Air Force should build ballistic missiles, and the Army should build ballistic missiles. What McNamara and his PPS, did he create a objective way to evaluate the budget? I don't know. He did create a way to evaluate the budget that did not rely on 40 years of military experience. And that changed where the political power sat. So was PPBS important because it was so brilliantly analytical, or was it important because it changed the political basis by which we made decisions? Yeah, I... I would still push back a little bit. Um, we know for a fact that McNamara, Hitch, Enthoven, E.S. Quaid, David Novick, these guys literally said that stuff, right? Like we are getting rid of these opinions and judgments and we are literally going to objectively optimize. And if you look at economics of defense in the nuclear age, they have indifference curves and production possibility frontiers and optimal allocation between strategic defense and, and bombing and all this stuff which is absurd to modern ears, but they actually thought it would work. And they had good reason to maybe think that it would work. So I don't actually blame them for not having the foresight. But then, of course, Laird came in with, with uh, participatory management, and he took it back out of their hands and put it back into the 40-year-olds the or, or back into the services. But they still used a lot of the same processes, those processes that still exist from the systems analysis age, just have new names today, but it's the same thing, essentially. And I guess... One of my issues is like the drive that the Air Force started with and then that resulted in the PBB was such that it created a structure where you had folks who are not responsible 
for getting the work done, but making programmatic decisions with potentially not the best information available to them, and then handing that off for basically execution. And then you just have contract managers. So you, so it perpetuated and in, indeed made worse this kind of rotational aspect and not having these long tenured folks like a Bernie Shriver, like Admiral Rickover, like a Red Rayborn um, in charge of what are essentially major engineering development programs and challenges. And so I think when you didn't have that program structure, you, you put the decision-making in the hands of people who know best. And then the people who are higher up, the oversight, view the outcomes of those actions. It's hard to say what someone should do, but when they actually do, are doing something and you're seeing that, it's much easier for an outsider to weigh perspective. And definitely during those 40s and 50 period, they always had, they brought in scientific advisory committees and all these other people to come in and give like third-party looks, right? It wasn't just like, just trust the general. <laughs> so there, there is some pushback. So Eric, can we harken back to the start of this conversation? Yes. The special projects office admirals came in and said, we're not doing making these decisions about Polaris blindly. We're making these decisions because PERT tells us what to do. Yet you were skeptical that PERT was really an objective, neutral, analytic way. Correct. Why were we trusting those admirals because they had 30 years of experience or because they had this management tool PERT? We trusted, well, to get the money out of Congress, it was PERT, but they weren't using PERT. They just used that as the quote unquote pizzazz and the whiz bang tool. I love their, their old 1960s terminologies, but the whiz bang tools that will get oversight quote unquote off their back and, and open up the spigots. So I, but that was just the, I guess the mantra could, at the time people believed you, in that. Huh? You mean but people like pitch Quaid all believed about PPBS? You're trying to have it both ways here, right? I'm not saying they didn't believe, but the, the whole point is they're looking at things we, you know, how much should we be relying on long range strike and how much should we be relying on tried and true weapon systems? There's a debate about what we should do in the future. There isn't an analytic answer, right? The only way we know that right. is tell me when we find out what we actually did. You can't even say what war we fought because there's a decent chance the next thing we're going to ask the military to do isn't actually a war. Certainly not the war as we imagine. The war I want you to fight is in North Africa, not actually in Normandy to start. Please sp spend five years there or uh, three years there first. Yes, definitely. I mean, we've, we haven't even like hit any of the questions that we've had to go through here, <laughs> which is, and, and I think that's great because we've had a, a good conversation, but it is an interesting thing, right? Like, it's not like programs never existed. Like, of course, there were debates at appropriations hearings on programs, even if the program wasn't controlled through the appropriations themselves. And we're actually in this weird phase. I found like a, a very interesting like interchange between Hitch where basically the Congress was like, why don't we just make every appropriation a program? Like, why are we going through this weird convoluted reprogramming process where they were actually doing major reprogramming in big old batches? And they were like, why don't we just bring them out into the open and make them appropriations? And Hitch just said, OMB wouldn't let us. And I was trying to track down their like letters and, and figure out what the problems were. But eventually, so like that's where we got to the issue. I think program analysis will always be important and you'll make those incremental adjustments to organizations who are probably cognizant for these things. But I don't know. I still, I don't have a good, I don't have a good answer. I still don't know because mine is a little bit of a wish and a prayer. And I look over to commercial industry and it's like, well, how do major agile organizations actually go in a direction. And it just seems mm -hmm. like they just have people with a lot of stand-up meetings in this matrix organization. 
I'm like, there's nothing really special there. It just seems like really hard to do and you need like good people. And I don't know, it would be nice to experiment with that. And that's what we saw. So I'd like to get your opinion. The SASC, the Senate Armed Services Committee is interested in looking at this PBBE reform is what they call it, the planning, programming, budgeting, execution, but really the funding process. And I think a lot of that came from like the National Security Commission on AI. They were asking for portfolio type stuff and the same from Section 809 panel. You had a nice paper. We, I wanted to get into it. We might have a little bit of time to talk about the fragmentation and, and you've brought that up, the fragmentation of the Department of Defense. What would like, what are your concerns like, or what are your thoughts about portfolio constructs and what the Congress seems to be pushing for here, which seems to be taking a hard look at this PBB for the first time since the 60s, of course, we've had Goldwater Nichols in 2003, but those were, I don't think, as sweeping as they're expecting. We've been experimenting with portfolio management for 40 years now. That's what SOCOM is. Here's special operations. Here's what we think special operations is. You, Commander SOCOM, you're in charge of it. That is what the rise of the MIP is. My portfolio is military intelligence and you, Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, are going to be the one responsible for looking across the portfolio. What's important is both of them created budget tools that allowed them to actually influence where the money went. We just did it with Space Force. Time to stop thinking about space as all these different things. Let's try to consolidate a single portfolio called space and make a chief of space operations. So to some extent, I think we're a long way along this path. I found a Joint Force quarterly article by the my former chairman of the board, Mike Donnelly, who I would point out eventually became a service secretary and so might have a little inclination to favor the military departments, but he was lamenting Goldwater Nichols. Hey, we've got all this idea that jointness is going to be great, but keep in mind, you used to have these organizations that were responsible for making everything. And every time you take away from that, these, are, these organizations called the military department, every time you take away from that, you have somebody taking their eye off the seams, and that could lead to things we don't like. Absolutely. What Chairman Donnelly or Secretary Donnelly soft pedals there is, was Goldwater Nichols justified in saying, man, the Army really looks at things only from a land perspective, and the Navy only looks at things from a sea perspective, and yet I rarely have a problem where the president goes, you know what I need? A sea solution. Almost always the problems the president faces are not domain specific. So that tension is fundamental. I love portfolio. If we could get rid of get rid of all of our existing organizational structure and only use portfolios, I'm for it. It seems a little rash to get rid of some of our organizations that have been around for hundreds of years. And I think that gets at your question about what's the difference between the US military or DOD or the US government in general and those private sectors, right? They can do that. They can fundamentally realign organization and start moving in a certain direction. Just don't forget that every once in a while, Motorola gives up its 100-year advantage and becomes the patents for Google. There is a risk to that. Don't forget what the universe of cases you're looking at. It's not just the winning companies right now. It's the companies after they failed, the companies that got sold off because the bet was wrong. Can I ask, why do you think there would be a major reorganization with portfolios? Because my imagination is just consolidate portfolio elements around the existing program executive offices, laboratories, and other like life cycle management centers. And so there's no reorganization. It's just, we now have our money and we're able to flexibly allocate it where we think we get the highest value or return. 
Sure, a matrix organization. Have one person looking from this direction, have another person looking from the perpendicular direction. Yeah, great right. idea. Aerospace is, is one of the best cases of matrix management I've seen. What happens when your portfolio champion disagrees with the chief of staff of the army about where to move money? What would happen? The, the chief of staff is ultimately the boss, right? So like my view is not all discipline has to come through the budget. Discipline that guy <laughs> through the administrative hierarchy. Oh, it, if this is a uh, big issue and there's big disagreements and the general is just, look, I'm going this way. I'm a Senate confirmed PEO. So I should have pretty good flexibility to make decisions. But if I'm just not getting on board, I'm going for this mission. And we know that the army has claim over it, let's just say, and my chief of staff intervenes and I refuse. Why am I still there? So your portfolios are only within, mil within military services? Portfolios don't overlap the services? A single portfolio overlapping multiple services? Yeah. Insofar as so if you look at SOCOM and they're like a portfolio that does that, but my imagination is that the, I guess it, or if you make the COCOMs, make them some like beefier portfolios. And we've seen with the, the kind of European and Pacific defense initiatives, it's not really theirs, but you could imagine that if they had some more capability to do their own networking or whatever on site, they could also be. But in general, I would think that no, the services like, the JPO would be a multi-service one. That's an organization that would be a portfolio. And it currently is. But like for the most part, they would be separate as like the current organizational structures are delivering to a joint war fighting in the COCOMs. Great. What, what happens when chief of staff of the army and the commander of central command disagree with each other about what the joint warfighting construct should be? I'll take a quote from John C. Rice, who just amazing book, The Management of Defense. On troublesome issues where sharp differences occur among subordinates, no substitute exists for the consideration of opposing views ably argued. The secretary must be able to examine the proponents carefully, convince them that he is familiar with the consequences of the decision and is intolerant of superficiality and is willing to use his political power fully if necessary in resolving the issues. It's great. And one of the, <laughs> the things that has happened about the reforms is the Secretary of Defense does have the authority, direction, and control to make those calls on the issues that come before him. But it turns right. out there's more dis disagreements in the Department of Defense than the Secretary of Defense has time for. And well, that's, that's a knowledge problem. It, it, problem. Yeah. I, I, I hear you too, because it is a hierarchical organization. But like one of the problems is people are limited in their capacity to understand and have attention as well. And so I'm always trying to consider, you know, the invisible hand context, right? Like how do we using dispersed knowledge, self-coordinate in such a way that we actually arrive at better decisions. And sometimes it's just going to have to be through straight up administrators right? Or having these multifunctional like committees or other ways of communication where people rely on each other, know what each other are doing. And then when those disagreements bubble up, then you handle them one at a time. But I, I'm not really, I don't have a perfect answer. I just can look at history and look at how other countries do it and just be like, there's some wisdom there. And again, that's the great promise of the new digital tool, right? My right. space force is trying to be the first digital service of that gives you the flexibility to keep looking at things from many different perspectives. Here's hoping, Eric. Here's hoping we're getting to the point where the tools are so adept and agile that no matter how many disagreements we come up with, we can very quickly access all the data, put the irreconcilable disagreements about the future in front of a decision maker and get a quick decision. Here's hoping that ever adjusting debate is finally going to come. Yeah, maybe you're the rational, the rationalist here on that front. There's one instance where someone was saying like, 
Hey, we used to like, when we found a defect on the line or something, we had an issue in the engineering, we have to send it up through this configuration management system. It goes to the top and then it goes back down and eventually someone will come look at it. And they just decided we're just going to use Snapchat and I'm just going to snap them a photo. And then like things just moved much faster. So maybe there's some hope for like digital tools to aid in a decision maker being able to affect himself better and go here a more complex organization because we always get in these bouts, right? We have better and better tools to manage the complexity, but then the complexity is running away from us. Because if you look back at the time, like in the fifties, they're like these IBM punch cards and we're going to inventory every machine tool. And then when the Korean war comes, we can just like agilely distribute them to exactly where they're needed. And then it was like the complexity outran that tool, but it was a good tool. And like we, and we keep going back and forth. We'll run it. The problem is the tool creates complexity. Uh, Perfect. When I have to call up my configuration management, that's a lot of friction. I only do that when there's a real problem. What about those times when I'm like, "Ah, I don't know, should I call or not? Oh, it's just a snapshot. Let's take more of those. The, The number of problems submitted through configuration management versus the number of problems submitted through Snapchat, I almost guarantee are not the same. All of us who live digitally during the pandemic are aware of, oh, wow, these digital tools are great. And there's a lot more meetings people want me to attend when I don't actually have to physically get to their meeting. So we're living through that proliferation. That's the question. I, there, there's some really positive reasons, right? We can just do more. We can see more complexity. That's uh, an amazing and awesome opportunity. What I wanted to flag was it has a downside. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And uh, so we've had a, a pretty interesting discussion here. I, I want to give you a chance. Is there anything else you'd like to end on? Or is there any kind of other points of view you'd like to bring into the fold here? Other points of view? Yeah, after an hour, after talking for an hour, we could pull off any of those and keep going. No, I just want to thank you, Eric. As this conversation demonstrated, you have a great command of history and are trying to bring that to these modern resource programs, it's an exciting time to be a part of defense. It's super exciting time to be a part of space and the defense dynamic with these new possibilities, with the DepSecDef writing memos about the potential for leveraging data. Here's hoping we're about to sail into a whole new world. Russell Rumbaugh, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.